0: Mm. Hans Ulrich Obrist is Artistic Director of the Serpentine Galleries in London and Senior Artistic Advisor of the Shed in New York. Prior to this, he was the curator of the Musée d'Art Modern de la Ville de Paris. Obrist had curated more than 300 exhibitions and lectured internationally at academic and art institutions. He is a contributing editor to Artforum, Another Magazine, 032C, a Rights for Moos, Kaleidoscope, Das Magazine, and Weltkunst. He received the CCS Bard Award for Curatorial Excellence and the International Folkwang Prize. His recent publications include Mondialite, Conversations in Mexico, Ways of Curating, The Age of Earthquakes with Douglas Coupland and Schumann Bazaar and lives of the artists, lives of the architects.
1: hans Ulrich welcome to the creative process.
2: Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to see you. We're here at the Café de Flore in Paris. It's a place where I spent a lot of time from 93 uh, to 2006, during the 14 years I lived in Paris. Mm-hmm. I did the majority of my meetings in this café, it was almost like my second office. So I thought it's a nice place for us to recall tonight's interview.
1: Oh, thank you for choosing it. And um, you're often bringing things outside of the museum. You're you're going, you've just come from studio visits. And the last time where we saw each other in Paris, it was Paris Photo. And you had there friends that you've had uh, from over 20 years and new friends. And you're always bringing people together. And they were saying about how you have maintained this amazing energy for all the years of your work. I mean, how do you do that? And it's a beautiful thing to be constantly finding ideas and new connections where others don't see them.
2: Yeah, I always thought that, you know, curating has to do with uh, junction making, which is somehow what J.G. Ballard defined when I I met him, the great English writer. I think in a way when I wake up in the morning, I always think, you know, how can I bring people together who haven't met Mm -hmm. each other yet? And I think, you know, my activity has always to do with junction making. I mean, when I do exhibitions, I make junctions between artworks, Mm -hmm. I make junctions between artists, uh, I make junctions between art and different disciplines. Because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we live in a society where there are a lot of silos. There's different, very specialised worlds. Mm -hmm. And I've always seen it as my role to kind of make connections between these different worlds, make junctions between these different worlds. And I think, you know, if we want to address a big question or challenges of the 21st century, if it's extinction and ecology, or if it's inequality, or if it's the future of technology, um, I think it's very important that we go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge, we go beyond the silos of knowledge, and bring the different disciplines together. And uh, so that's really at the core of what I do, and I do it through my exhibitions, I do it through my conferences. But I, you know, for me, I do it also every day because, like a day, like today. I'm in Paris, I took the to train this morning, you know, I would visit artists, I was at the studio of Simon Fatal and the Tel I'd have work meetings um, for projects, at the same time I would go and see exhibitions, um, and uh, then at the end of the day, like from six, seven onwards, until midnight, I would do meetings, and uh, very often, you know, these meetings overlap, people meet each other, it's a kind of an infinite conversation.
1: Yes. And I'm really curious why you think that for you, the making of juxtapositions and joining people together and um, different disciplines together is a a natural one that you've always had. But I do. I'm curious as to why you feel others forget that over time, you know? Yeah,
2: I don't know why, you know, I mean, lots of people do it. But I think in a way, it's got to do, I think, with the fact that we have all very specialized knowledge. And that he, I mean, when you look at Athanasius Kirchner, you know, he actually thought that he wanted to combine or bring together all the knowledge mm-hmm. in the world. And that's something we had also in the, the Renaissance, you know, that the possibility of kind of having all this knowledge. And then I think more and more the world's got specialized. And uh, I think it's through this specialization, uh, it's today no longer possible to know everything, obviously. And so for yeah. that very reason, I think there is particularly often in the contact with fields of knowledge where we don't know anything about it, there is a fear, a fear because we might you know, not know about it. And I think it's about taking this fear away, because very often it's in this kind of contact zones when we go into a world where we are not an expert, where we are not a specialist that mm-hmm. we can actually create something very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a childlike wonder as well and yeah. combining things. And you mentioned the Renaissance and we're now 500 years since the passing of Da Vinci. And again, a, a great, great artist, but a great inventor, a great yeah. person, a curious across many disciplines. Um, and you've had the opportunity, to, I don't know how many interviews yourself have done beyond your like over 300 exhibitions you've curated. Uh, I know rituals are important for you. What rituals... Of genius, or what rituals of very talented people, like of the Da Vinci realm of others, have you observed?
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting that the idea of the ritual, because mm-hmm. of course rituals are always, in, you know, also involve a certain repetition, mm-hmm. um, and there is also certain stability in it because they actually come back, mm-hmm. uh, even if, you know, they're each time different, but mm-hmm. there is a certain amount of repetition. I think also, in a way, rituals are kind of a community without communication. And I think today, you know, we live in a situation where we have a lot of communication with these devices yeah. without community. Mm-hmm. It's not because of these devices necessarily that we have community that can be quite isolating. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of communication without community. And I think in, in that very moment it's very important to have to kind of revisit this ritual idea, which mm-hmm. is a community without communication. The Russian director, Andrei Tarkovsky, already observed, I think it was in the 70s or 80s, that we live in a society bereft of rituals and we need to kind of reintroduce rituals. So I've always had an an inclination, one can say, or a desire to kind of introduce rituals to my life. I mean, one ritual is, for example, that I buy a book every day. Another ritual is the night train. And, uh, you know, I started really my whole trajectory by using night trains and now, of course, with the necessity and urgency to fly less, Mm. I want to bring night trains back. And unfortunately, you know, when I was a student uh, in the the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, you could almost go anywhere in Europe by night train. You could go from Paris, you could now take a night train at midnight to Zurich. Mm. You could basically just go to the railway station at midnight and go to a city in Europe. And many of these (laughs) night trains have actually disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I see it as a duty and an incredible necessity to bring these night trains back with artists and architects and designers and develop a kind of a new, you know, presence of of night trains, because night trains were my most important rituals. I would just always, you know, I had no money for hotels, Mm -hmm. so I would just always, I mean, now, I would just go to the railway station, go to the next city and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, take a train. And I think we need to have that possibility again that we, we can move slower. So it's not about traveling less, mm. uh, but it's about traveling differently, right? So uh, night trains is a ritual. I would say also, um, of course, I mean, Da Vinci had mm. this sleep, sleeping rhythm that he would only sleep 15 minutes every three hours. So that means he would seven, eight times a day sleep for, you know, for 15 minutes. And uh, I did that for almost a year. Mm. And that's how I wrote my first books. Mm. So kind of. I mean now I sleep much more of course because it wasn't fully sustainable but that was another you know experiment then as I said you know I have a ritual uh, of buying a book every day I have another ritual of reading Edouard Glissant every morning for me I don't know have you read Edouard Glissant
1: yes and the archipelago exactly and and opacité
2: and mondialité and periodization with Edouard Glissant really um, also the the idea of utopie du tremblement the Mm. trembling utopia which he you know describes in his extraordinary novel Sartorius. So, Eduard Lisson was, and again, it's very interesting that we sit here at the Café de Flore because at this very table here, where we now record the interview, mm-hmm. I had many meetings with Edouard Lisson. Ah, yeah, and please. he would sit you know, uh, here and we would talk. And uh, I mean, Lisson very early on understood that the homogenizing forces are at stake very much also in the world of culture and that this is not the first time we experience you know, globalization but it's certainly, without a doubt, the most vehement moment of globalization we have experienced. And I think um, it's important that we have to resist that, because this homogenized globalization leads to extinction, leads to a disappearance of species, but also a disappearance of cultural phenomena. There was last week in the news that languages disappear at a faster speed than ever before. We're losing many languages. At the same time, You know, cultural phenomena such as handwriting disappear, which is why I devote or dedicate my Instagram, as you might know, yes. to, you know, doodling and handwriting. He had a first exchange yesterday with Michel Rovno. Mm-hmm. So every day, you know, I post a handwritten note or a tree by Kouchonga, a Gothic Gaudi calligraphy, and an arc Gaudi calligraphy by Claudia Baches rabal So I would post every day a calligraphy or a handwritten doodle or note. Mm-hmm. The protest against it is was handwritten. So as Glissant says, we need to resist the homogenized globalization. And what disappears with it at the same time he understood early on that there is a counter reaction at stake and that that counter reaction to globalization can also be called anti-globalization will lead to the disappearance will actually lead to the disappearance of tolerance it will lead to a kind of anti-globalization through nationalism through localisms in the worst case even through racisms and he said we need to resist that as much we need to vehemently resist you know, these um, new forms of, of lack of solidarity, right? And so he said, we need to resist globalization and we need to resist its counter reaction. And we need to come up with something he calls mondialite. And mondialite is a global dialogue, which is able to listen, listen to each other, and to know that, you know, by listening to the other, we can change, but that is not why we would lose our identity. Our identity mind is actually getting richer by listening to each other. And so that idea of a, a global dialogue which is somehow very sensitive and very careful with local differences mm-hmm. and listens is something which I've, you know, tried to bring into curation. I need to be reminded of that every morning. So this mm-hmm. is why when I wake up, I read 15 minutes of a Édouard song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's another ritual. I don't know, I mean, there are many more rituals. I go jogging uh, every morning when I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it Depends a bit where I am in the world, but the, the kind of running ritual is very important and, uh, and so on.
1: I liked it's your idea of the night train, and I don't know if you're working on a project this now. And I wonder about the nature of your writing under the influence of night and day or yeah. lack of sleep.
2: Yeah, I mean, I used to have a lot of you know sleepless nights, mm-hmm. um, and so that clearly mm-hmm. you know inspired my writing. I mean, now I no longer really do it since two thousand. I would say three, four, five. Mm-hmm. When I started to have more institutional responsibilities, and you know. I have a job, I mean, I go, you know, I used to be freelance, and so then mm-hmm. I just sort of check the time and so on. And now, of course, you know, I have office hours and uh, more institutional responsibilities. So I realized that, you know, I need to restructure the day differently. But through these rituals, mm-hmm. I can still stretch all the time, time, you know. As I described to you, a day for me, you know, is very mm-hmm. long. And yeah. if I look at the day today in Paris, it was very intense. Mm-hmm. And when we can make a day a week or a week a month, you know, we can stretch time or liberate time, I think it's important also that we liberate time, for me I'm always very worried you know, I think the older one gets the faster time passes, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think which is something everybody you know observes that with every year advancing time goes faster Mm -hmm. and so I think it's important that we liberate time because otherwise we can no longer be playful otherwise we just somehow are imprisoned in our own system of being busy you know and I think the idea of just being busy all the time you know we need to be able to be playful, we need to be able to experiment, you need to be able to, to be free. And so in that sense, it's about liberating time. I think the most important thing is liberate time. Yeah. And I always thought you know, that I don't have enough time, so I have to liberate time by not sleeping. But now I actually realize that I can do both. I can sleep and I can still liberate time.
1: I think when you're sleeping and you're dreaming, a lot of problems can be solved. So it's it's nice. I feel like you have a little, like a worker, when you w- wake it up and um, anyway. Exactly,
2: because yeah. I was in Paris maybe 10 years ago and I went to see Edan Sixu. Mm-hmm great writer and poet and uh, Elen Siksu gave me a little book which she had next to her bedside basically it's a book which was the notation of all her dreams she subsequently mm-hmm. also published it and um, she said you know look at my dreams And so we looked at the dreams and then i realized you know when when you don't sleep you don't dream yeah. so that was the day i decided to sleep
1: so i was just looking at your ecology project which is I guess you've also decided to reduce your flying for the fiftieth yeah. anniversary and and then in permanence you reduce your flying for the fiftieth anniversary. Yeah, it's so actually
2: I much easier than one thinks because uh-huh. you know I've already reduced it by an important, you know, percentage and I'm really gonna drastically reduce it over the yeah. years to come. And that's very easy because I, I'm just bundling trips and I'm no longer, you know. Mm-hmm. going to places many times a year, but I go I go there for longer stretches, for longer time spans, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So I would go, before I would always go for a couple of days to New York, I would rush back to London, mm-hmm. and now I do less trips, for example, to New York, but I would mm-hmm. stay for 10 days or two weeks, okay. right. So that may, means I, I can reduce the flying mm-hmm. very drastically. And then in Europe, uh, and do much, much less intercontinental kind of travel, and then mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, in Europe, I can do a lot by train. Uh-huh. And so, um, th- no, it's, it doesn't mean less traveling, it just means traveling differently.
1: And how does that change the nature of your curation?
2: Um, we'll see, you know, I, think, I think it will lead to um, more time for research also, because I think mm-hmm. the whole rush is actually negative for research. Um, mm-hmm. So it will hopefully liberate time to come back yeah. to the discussion from before. Um, I think it will also lead to what Ben Vickers calls slow programming, which are more long-duration projects that expand beyond the conventional limits of finite exhibitions or museums, you know. I mean, that's what we are now doing with Back to Earth. Back mm-hmm. to Earth is an exhibition which is 50 campaigns by artists over the next couple of years. It's at the same time an exhibition, but it also will appear in many different other places. And so I think it will lead to less event culture. You know, I think we kinda got to get beyond these ideas. I mean in terms of resources we live in a world of event cultures but these events are very um, speedy and very often not very resource friendly you know and so I think it will lead to slower programming yeah but then also I mean it doesn't categorically change because I've always been interested in that I mean I studied ecology and economy Mm -hmm. with uh, professor Binswanger when I was a student um, in the late 80s I would then focus very much on ecology with a project called do it well we did it with mm-hmm. Boltansky and again it started at the Café de Fleur. Mm-hmm. So it's again very timely, we do this conversation here, mm-hmm. because we have many meetings about do it here and at the Café setup and that's an exhibition we started, I would say 27, 28 years ago, and it's an exhibition built built on or constituted by instructions and how-to manuals and recipes, and then people can interpret it differently, you know, and so each time the show goes somewhere, it's actually a great, uh, somehow an application of Glissant's idea of mondialité. Because each time the show goes somewhere, we listen to the local context, we bring in local artists, and at the same time, you know, interpret the global instructions through local practitioners. And so in that sense, there is never a transport involved. Mm -hmm. You know, it's reversible, with ready-made. If a ready-made is brought into the exhibition, at the end of the exhibition, it goes back to society. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say, you know, DO-IT is a quite sustainable exhibition model, and it has evolved over 30 years. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, we've already done it. Of without really
1: knowing it's making us attentive to the art of listening yeah. um, and not just the product but you're getting people to to listen to each other and really understand one another's ideas uh, what were some of your favorite expressions or um, implementation would you say implementations but of just do it
2: it's difficult to say the favorites you know because I always resist the favorite question because I kind of love them all Thank you. And uh, <clears throat> but I mean, the idea with Louis Bourgeois that you can actually change a lot of things with a smile, you know, mm-hmm. you actually yes. go into the city and smile, um, you know, is interesting because it's a very material work, but yet it can have an impact on, on you know, on society. I like also when Alice knows says, you know, we, we're not only asking people to kind of do something, we actually ask them also to bring something. So that's mm-hmm. sort of Wolf Lux's idea of Alice knows has to do with generosity. And mm-hmm. I think we need more generosity for the 21st century. So mm-hmm. I like the instructions which are very generous.
1: How do you f- feel that you have evolved over time? If you look back at your life like as the rings of a tr- in a tree, you know? Yeah. You were talking about a ch- your changing relationship to time and um, you know, sl- uh, making your trips longer.
2: Yeah, I mean I always believe that you know, we are always learning and I'm sort of mm-hmm. an eternal student because I believe yeah. the secret is kind of endless curiosity Mm-hmm. and to always be in that sense, you know, to learn, to listen. So I think, you know, we, we're still very far from, you know, where I would be in a situation where I will feel that I have reached, I mean, I'm in a, on a path, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and on that path I'm learning and I've learned most of the things from artists in this mm-hmm. so far about 4,000 hours of conversation, which I recall. Mm-hmm. And that archive is in a way the continuum of everything I do yeah. at the beginning. He produced a lot of independent projects because I was an independent curator. And then, mm-hmm. after 2000, I became an institutional curator in terms of mm-hmm. being at the Musée d'Armor, no longer the Migrateur curator, but being actually mm-hmm. having a, a fixed job there. And then in 2006, I became co director and now director. Mm-hmm. You know, of the certain time, I'm now the artistic director, so I'm actually a museum director. So I've had these different phases mm-hmm. in my life. I was an independent curator, I was an institutional curator. Mm-hmm. Who still curated a lot of us internationally, and now I'm a museum director. And you know, the question will be what will be next. I mean, for the moment, I'm very excited mm-hmm. because of all these new dimensions in London. We have the new CEO, Bettina Korek, mm-hmm. uh, who is amazing. We have you know all these different new uh, positions we create, like the civic curator, the chief technology officer, the ecology mm-hmm. curator. So we really restructured the Serpentine in a way which I find is very exciting. It's Mm -hmm. also a very flexible instrument, which can react to the world. It's like a seismographic instrument. It's not Mm -hmm. a heavy, big structure. So, for the time being, you know, I'm very uh, happy and uh, excited about what the serpentine can really do Mm -hmm. in terms of agency. Uh, But who knows what will be the next chapter? There will certainly be a next chapter later on, but it's not necessarily in the world of museums. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I can, for example, easily imagine to be an ambassador to Switzerland. And go into diplomacy because I would I find very interesting in terms of juncture making. Mm-hmm. Or I could also imagine at some point to start a school like ah. the Black Mountain College. So, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not gonna, for me, it's not the process where it's not about the career, you know, where I think, you know, okay, I'm a curator, then I become a director, then I want a bigger museum, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's not an institutional career. It's, it's in that yeah. sense, more unorthodox, and I suppose also, you know, not necessarily only. Focus on the art world because I'm interested in how we can bring art into society. So I would say I've increasingly become aware also, I would say, talking about evolution, you know, mm-hmm. I've become aware how important it is that we can communicate beyond the art world. You know, mm-hmm. we just, and that can be through pop, we just done this collaboration with BTS, with K pop, mm-hmm. which, uh, and Jakob Knut Stinson, mm-hmm. that can be through, you know, politics, that can be through diplomacy, that can also be through actually. Creating what John Latham and Pablo Stebini call the artist-based group, mm-hmm. that you start to think about how you can actually bring artists, you know, at the table where decisions are made, how you can bring artists, you know, in, into uh, into society.
1: And so I, I am very interested at what that would look like. Diplomacy—you could kind of reinvent. My understanding of the diplomatic world is shallow, but I I think that would be interesting. Uh, what you, what you could do with that, and also I'm very interested in knowing what your version or your reinvention of a kind of Black Mountain College would be. How would you do that? Yeah, I
2: mean, it's, you know, difficult to uh-huh. talk about it because it's still in, in the incubation, so I haven't really, you know, it's part of my long list, you know, of, un, of unrealized projects. Um, yeah. But I think it's clearly, you know, um, a very interdisciplinary school. I have a list... Yeah. I just wrote, you know, I have a weekly column in Switzerland. Yeah. We, And that's also, I mean, again, part of this idea of speaking beyond the art world, you know, mm. so we, it has a million readers. It happens in a weekly magazine, yeah. in a supplement every Saturday. And so every week I write something, you know, it's also my connection to Switzerland. And last week they asked me about my unrealized project. And so I said, you know, it's to work with Jean Luc Godard, mm. which is something I always wanted, but I couldn't meet him. Mm. It's to write a novel. I have a sort of a novel I want to do, which is sort of unfinished um it's to make a book out of my instagram project it's uh, an empty house i really want to have an empty house somewhere where i can invite artists almost like a group show mm-hmm. and give them space and it becomes like a palimpsest layer that really leaves something behind and it becomes this mm-hmm. gesamtkunstwerk you know sort of mm-hmm. curated over time Almost like what we did with time when we mm-hmm. did 11 rooms you know applied to a house so for that we need a house and a place then the train system I mentioned to you is an unrealized project. I mean, Austria and Sweden are doing better than other countries, but we have to make it a movement to mm-hmm. curate the city. So mm-hmm. the idea to curate the city like an exhibition. And then also last but not least, of course, these other unrealized projects. You know, I spoke to Demis Hassabis the other day, mm-hmm. and he, of course, um, did this really amazing project where a computer he programmed or like he was able to beat the best Go player in the world and uh, managed to supersede or, or, or actually beat the the, the master it's interesting because my friend marcus de soto the mathematician said mm-hmm. always ai will not make mathematicians redundant because computer might beat the chess player like they did you know the mm-hmm. famous kasparov case and yeah. the world champion kasparov was beaten by a computer but marcus de soto said that the computer will never ever be able to beat the best Go player in the world and that's why the world we always need mathematicians. Yeah. And then happened what happened, the rest is history actually. Demis has mm-hmm. to be computer did be the best go player. And so when I read that I was thinking, you know, how interesting it would be one day to have an exhibition which I would curate or some friends or and an I AI. would curate. Yeah. And then AI would curate an exhibition. And then visitors could judge what they like more or what they feel is more edifying or what is more transcendental or is more potal and I would be humble about it, you know, who knows, maybe the machine could win, you never know. After what happened with the GoPro player, we could never be
1: arrogant. Yeah, but almost it's not, it's not always just winning, because also chess is a performance, then the, the, what is the tension when you watch uh, an AI? I've never seen an The AI. good thing
2: is that you wouldn't have a winner with the exhibition, it's not sports, and so you couldn't say the machine beats the human, but what I meant is, is less that, we have to kind of phrase it differently, what I yeah. meant is more, interesting it would be you know that's an unreal question of mine mm-hmm. you, you imagine you come as a visitor mm-hmm. and you see an exhibition curated by humans and curated by machines it mm-hmm. would be really fascinating just yeah. as an experience you, yeah. you know you might like both or you might like one better than the other or they would be very different opinions so there would not be a clear winner, you know If yes. that's not like with the game but you would mm-hmm. see it would still be a very interesting experience you know and then there's also avatar Mm-hmm. Um, ben Vickers is working mm-hmm. on my avatar. My avatar is going to be called Who are 9,000.
3: Uh-huh. So we're
2: working full team at that, where my entire you know, writing, all my interviews, everything I've ever done is fed into this avatar. Uh-huh. And uh, then I can travel even less, and we we'll finally have time to write my novel.
1: Ah, okay. You said, how many of these avatars? Are you just going to have one? I
2: so just work on one. For ah, a okay. But yeah. what was your I question? Was wondering I deviated from your question. In ah, there
1: were, were so many threads I wanted to pull out. I imagined the night train and not that full of artists and other creative people. Yeah, the
2: night train could also be an exhibition, by the way.
1: Yes. It and would, also know, like I did a
2: kitchen show, yeah. I did a hotel show. It would be great to curate the night train.
1: Also, you could make people stay on the train until they come up with something good. That <laughs> it's, like a pre- it's like an yes, art penitentiary. Or like the Russian
2: it. cinema train during the revolution.
1: Yeah. Um, and then there were other things. I like to be helpful, if I can be helpful. I know that's something you s- like to save yourself. As you speak about education, if I, you know what I'm involved with? A lot of students from over 70 universities yeah, and schools, and they come to us saying things that they what they want out of education, and teachers too, so if if there are ways we can pool and we can ask them and and do something, um, they're very interested in the interdisciplinary, but they don't always, depending on the university, get a chance. So which of those those are most urgent? I mean,
2: it's actually now being realized because it started out of the Mm -hmm. European election last year in uh, Denmark. Mm There was the risk that some, you know, xenophobic, extreme mm. right-wing parties
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, might actually win in the European elections, and mm-hmm. so the, uh, it's again the Glissant question: How mm-hmm. can we resist these new forms of nationalism and racism and mm-hmm. lack of solidarity through art, also? And so the, the Danish Charlottenburg Kunsthalle and the, and the festival, the mm-hmm. music festival, asked me to do billboards with artists mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, resist this form of nationalistic kind of discourse, mm-hmm. and have a more open dialogue, and so I invited 12 artists to do a poster, and I called this project, it's Ersche, because it was mm-hmm. what the situation was, and then we, we, we brought it to Luma in Zurich, the Luma Westphal, and I was going to go to Al,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: we, we let the project grow. So this is a good example of how I work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a typical example. So I basically have a big interest in what role can kind of play... Mm-hmm. in art and society, you know, what, are, what, what role can art play in society, how can we bring art more into society. I researched that mm-hmm. and all of a sudden at this point an invitation comes from Denmark mm-hmm. to do an exhibition and I say, you know, I've actually got this research mm-hmm. about art and society, APG, and I want to do a post exhibition because mm-hmm. we did one with Utopia Station, but we haven't done mm-hmm. one in a long time, in the Billboard exhibition. So I said, for Denmark, because they wanted to have a very public exhibition, you know, we can do for a month or two this uh, exhibition. Mm-hmm. And then once the exhibition was over, I decided there are many, many more artists I want to invite to do a post a billboard. I could only invite mm-hmm. 12 here. So then it grew from 12 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 60, 70, 80, 90. Mm-hmm. It's now almost 100 artists. And it led to an exhibition in two chapters at the Luma Foundation in Zurich, seamlessly after this. it's uh, it maybe a week in between. you know and uh, we, we, we had the uh, uh, design office, norm. and mm-hmm. bring uh, we always in different disciplines, so we got the design office, norm to do a display of these big posters, and I also printed them in small, from so the wall they were big, and mm-hmm. we printed them in small, so that people can take them away and put them in the city, mm-hmm. uh, almost like you know a Margarillia way mm-hmm. of using these posters in urban space. And then, mm-hmm. I started to work on a project with Joan Fonda. We do uh, with Trudy um, uh, Chicago. We're mm-hmm. doing a show with her, a great feminist pioneer, uh, pioneer artist in London. And then Trudy Chicago was also part of these two posters, poster exhibition at the Bumbershoot Fair. Mm-hmm. And then Trudy Chicago had an exhibition in uh, in Washington DC. And at the opening, talked about my project and how she feels that it's really urgent. The people in America also know about its urgent and we can bring this into the American election. And then she spoke in that speech and Jane Fonda was in the room Mm -hmm. and really liked it. And then Julie gave her my number, she rang me. Mm -hmm. Then I went to DC, we did a conversation with Jane Fonda, with her really Friday, real thing, Mm -hmm. and spoke to the different institutions there. And so the idea is now to bring the Bureau Project probably also to the US. Mm -hmm. So you see, there isn't a master plan. I couldn't have known here that a year later we are here. But at the same time, I. It's also not completely by chance, mm-hmm. it's controlled chance, if you know what I yes,
3: mean. Yes, I do, yes.
2: And I let it evolve, but it, I'm open, uh-huh. so I allow this to happen, I allow this to enter my system. I don't mm-hmm. have this idea like, oh, you're now going to do a show with a hand artists, we're going to do billboards, where mm-hmm. could I do it? And then mm-hmm. I write in proposals. It's the yeah. opposite, it's more like organic, mm-hmm. almost like biological, it evolves, you know, like an evolutive system.
1: Yeah, Yeah, so you have created this way of working. I mean, a lot of people are still... You are, like, reinventing the way of... um, Yeah, keep changing, yeah, yeah. I think it's people don't always have that courage, but I think you've really pointed the way for a lot of people, and now they are questioning, you know, what a museum can be and what can... Would you like that everyone eventually realizes their artistic potential? I mean, in terms of you are bringing it out into... Art out into the world. Would you like for people to claim that notion more deeply that they could be an artist?
2: Yeah, an artist or a curator or you know an urbanist or a designer. All of these possible things. I think in a way, yes. I hope that the work and the projects mm. like this are triggers and uh, that they are not just a thing in themselves. You know, and I think it's very important. I mean, today, I saw Itel Annam, mm. the great poet and uh, artist and uh, you know architect and mm. visionary writer, and. Uh, She always gives me so much courage, you know, and I think in a way we live in a world where we need immense courage to function and even more courage, not only to function every day and get out of bed, but Mm -hmm. we need immense courage to make a contribution to society. Mm -hmm. So I hope that with my work, Mm -hmm. I can somehow create that. And I have a lot of mentors and artists from whom I got advice how to do it, but I think, yeah, I mean, it's hopefully, it's a toolbox, you know, I think books, I mean, if you look at Glissant, when I grew up, you know, kind of Foucault and Deleuze, There was this whole idea that they were like toolboxes, we could use Mm -hmm. them. And I think today it's Mark Mm Lissau. Lissau is a bigger toolbox today. It's a a bigger toolbox than any other writer. And, you know, I hope that my kind of evolutive, sprawling, evolving exhibitions, in a similar way, can be a toolbox for people.
0: My name is Ali Chow. I am a graduate of UCLA and I majored in Art History with a minor in Digital Humanities. Mia's interview with Hans Ulrich was thoroughly fascinating to listen to for the breadth of topics covered including his rituals, his ambitions for a school, opinions on the art market, the environment, AI exhibitions, and more. I particularly enjoyed listening to his view of the loss of cultural phenomena such as handwriting, which I really relate to as someone who depends very much on recording events, thoughts, notes by hand. I checked out Hans Ulrich's Instagram, which he mentioned in the podcast, and I love that he values this asset to human culture and tries to stress its importance through social media. I also really appreciate Hans Ulrich's efforts to transcend simply contemporary art into architecture, literature, and music, as demonstrated in the Serpentine Gallery's recent collaboration with K-pop group BTS. Art is evidently a medium of communication, a language that everyone around the world can have access to and to connect with. Since I studied Digital Humanities as my minor, a program that encourages research and conducting projects that combines technology with humanities, I am also quite in touch with the question of how this digital world we live in can impact soft disciplines like the arts. I have also previously considered the possibilities of robotics, AI, and computers driving away the importance of long-standing culture, or perhaps replacing the use of people in the arts, which have been so core to this discipline for centuries. But it is comforting to hear that Hans Ulrich believes that there would be a continued need for humans, and in a positive light, there could be a good balance between AI and humans for things like curating or forming exhibitions, which opens more possibilities for enjoying the arts for future generations.
1: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with curator, critic, and art historian Hans Uruk-Obrist. As I listen to you speak, and I understand only a a, a slice of your immense work, um, that you have a very Pure relationship to art, and yeah. that there's a lot of cynicism that other people have about a monetary value is attached yeah. to art, and sometimes it's seen either as decorative or having this monetary value. Is that disappointing to you? To me, you've seen it's such a contrast to this like you're, you love the art, but in so many people's minds, a work of art is reduced to its monetary value.
2: I grew up in a small town in Switzerland uh, called Weinfeld, it's near Austria and Germany, so mm-hmm. it's the lake, you know constants where three countries meet. And when I grew up in this village I would always read the village newspaper of course mm-hmm. when I came back from school and there were all these articles about Joseph Boyce having founded the Green Party and you know, already then the, the idea of the Green Party was there, the idea of ecology was there. There was also there were all these artists about Andy Warhol doing The Last Supper in Milan. You know, these things made me dream. And then I kind of wanted to be part of the art world and started mm-hmm. to visit artists and so on. My mother, you know, once I left Switzerland, I left Switzerland quite early. I studied economy and ecology with Professor Binswanger. Then I got a grant. From, I did the kitchen show. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of also very DIY, I think, because I studied. Mm-hmm. And whilst I was a student, when I was 22, I did an exhibition in my kitchen with Peter fishley David Weiss, Christian mm-hmm. Boltanski, and others. Friedrich Bolibarbre from the Ivory Coast, Boltanski from Paris, fishley from Zurich. And this exhibition, you know, had 28 visitors, 29 visitors, but became a rumor. Because mm-hmm. people who saw it saw something really, you know, they had never experienced a show mm-hmm. in a kitchen, and then they told all their friends, and mm-hmm. then we did a book, and it became a rumor. So in a way, the very DIY, it's kind of a do-it-yourself way. Mm-hmm. I had somehow it started to, to to work, but then I very soon, you know, got the grant. Mm-hmm. to go to Paris, became a, a resident of the Cartier Foundation, then I met my mentor Suzanne Paget, mm-hmm. whom I saw actually today, who now runs, uh, runs the Foundation Louis Vuitton, mm-hmm. and she was at the time the director of the mm-hmm. Musée d'Art Moderne. She gave me our first job, she asked me to write for her Giacometti catalogue, mm-hmm. and interview all the artists who had known Alberto Giacometti, which is an amazing, amazing project for a 22-year-old curator to do, because I could go and see Balthus, I could go and see Mata, I could go and see cartier you know, they were all still alive, these historic figures mm-hmm. who knew Chacometti. And then basically Mario Merz and, and, and you know, through that I became part of the Musée La Moderne. Suzanne realized that I was more like a free spirit, so she invented this formula, Migrateur, Migrator. So mm-hmm. it was a migrating formula where little exhibitions could happen anywhere in the museum. Mm-hmm. And so I had left Switzerland for good, I never went back. I mean, I have a lot of friends in Switzerland, I work sometimes there. Mm-hmm. Now I have a show there again, but um, it's urgent. But, you know, I'm, I've not been based in Switzerland ever since I'm 23, 22. I haven't had a house there, I stopped my studies, I went abroad, I worked for the Museum of Den. So obviously my mother, you know, as a kind of a present at the end of the year, would always give me an envelope with all the articles which have actually reached the Swiss village from our world, right? Mm-hmm. But she would just, whenever there was an article about contemporary art in the village newspaper, cut it out, put it in an envelope. And the thing is, really, through that, through my mother's annual gift of this summary, you know, of what from our world reaches mm-hmm. that little village, I realized really how the art drastically changed. Because when I was a kid, it was all about the Green Party, about Joseph Beuys, about Andy Warhol, about big projects, big ideas. And little by little, it was no longer about that, but what reached the village in Switzerland were auction records, yeah. Mm-hmm. And And it's also interesting that always, when I'm, I mean, I'm interviewed almost every day, you know, mm-hmm for newspapers or magazines and and I'm very regularly asked to comment about the art market. Mm. And I always say, you know, I'm the wrong you got the wrong mm. guy because I know mm. nothing about it. I don't know more about the art market than mm. anyone in the street. I mean it's not my job. I you know, I work with the public sphere, I bring art mm. into the public sector, I, I work with artists, I do books, you know, I, I, I try to curate very public exhibition. We have more yeah. than a million visitors a year. Mm-hmm. We now go into Barking Dagenham, so we go from the south that also into into suburbs, into mm-hmm. different parts of London, tour our shows in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. It's not really tours, but we sort of evolve them
1: You send globally. the pavilions. We yes. send the pavilions,
2: yes. work with the pavilions. Mm-hmm. So it's a very public work, but it's mm-hmm. nothing to do with the art market, so I really don't know much about it. But it's so, so, And the interesting thing, you know, for me, it's not about... I mean, it's always artists must make a living. Mm-hmm. and. I've never had a problem with the fact that there is an art market where mm-hmm. artists can make a living from. But what is an issue is that that becomes the main thing from our world, which goes into society. Mm-hmm. You know, because it then replaces what are the strong ideas. And I think today we have a situation where extraordinary artists are working, you know, the mm-hmm. Joseph Boys and Andy Walls of today are the Sandra Paris and the Ian Shanks and, and the Jakob Knudstinsons. And we basically need to... And there are many, many extraordinary artists here today, but we need to find a way that actually the village newspaper will again write about these ideas and not just about auction records. Yes. It's a kind of a metaphor, if you know what I mean, the village newspaper. I
1: think that students or young people still have that pure relationship yeah. to it. And I guess I'm not really curious about the art market. I mean to ask about how does the monetary value of a work of art affect our perception of it? And, and that yeah. is sad.
2: In my projects and exhibitions, you know, people hopefully don't see, you know, dollar signs. Yeah. Because it's very far away from that, you know? Of yeah. course, you know, money yes. does play a role because we need to fundraise. And it's part, mm-hmm. you know, part of my relationship to the economic sector and to, to, to you know, to business mm-hmm. and all of that is, of course, fundraising. You know, it's, mm-hmm. the, it's, and it's important, I think, for a curator and even more so for a museum director To be able to fundraise and to find also new ways of fundraising Mm -hmm. and uh and i actually don't call it so much fundraising it's more partnerships you know partnerships to kind of bring out into society and find partners on the way you know who can pay for it and that's of course something i'm not you know at all resisting i am very involved with that because i believe we just need to do it in an ethical way but uh, it's also part of again being useful you know because if i have great ideas together Mm -hmm. with artists but i'm not able to kind of Produce them, and I think the thing for young curators, which I always advise, is mm-hmm. to kind of not just look where everybody looks, you know. Because I think there is a, to use another a kind of a business analogy: there is blue ocean and red ocean, right? And mm-hmm. red ocean is where everybody, you know, goes, mm-hmm. and then it becomes very competitive.
1: All the sharks. And blue
2: there. ocean, all the sharks, also. And blue ocean is where you can very peacefully swim. Mm-hmm. And and I think in a way, for the moment, you know. For each curator job in a the museum, mm-hmm. there are like 300, 400 applications, mm-hmm. because every you know curator students, many curators in supply, mm-hmm. but you know, and that's of course totally legitimate. Mm-hmm. I'm not against that, but what I'm saying is that there are many, many other possibilities how you can actually you know and I did it with the kitchen, I did a very DIY way, but yeah. today there are many possibilities how you can actually bring out into society. You know, there are so many companies corporate structures, government structures, yeah, and you really can just, I mean, and I've always believed in this idea, but just going there and telling people that, I mean, when I was like in my early 20s, mid 20s, and I would go everywhere and we would just say, you know, we want to do art here, we did with Museum in Progress, billboard exhibitions, mm-hmm. we did exhibitions on airplanes with Austrian airlines, on trains, we did exhibitions, that's all Museum in Progress, which you can see on the website, mip.at, mm-hmm. you know, as Robert Musil says, art can expi- can happen where we expect it least, so these exhibitions had very surprising Occurrences or appearances. At the same time, you know, I would say the Sir John Soames Museum is a nineteenth century museum, it's one of the great icons. I don't know if you've ever been there, it's in London. Mm-hmm. It's a nineteenth century museum, the Sir John Soames museum, no, Lincoln Fields. Seen. The architect, yeah, when you're there next you should visit. It's very beautiful mm-hmm. and the architect Sir John Soames lived there, you know, taught there. It is a kind of a picture gallery where there's, you know, Turner and Hogarth and artists from his generation in the nineteenth century. And, you know, we went there once with Carrie Wien Evans, the famous artist now, mm-hmm. but Carrie was then a young artist and I was an unknown, I mean, I was in Switzerland, but I wasn't known in England, I was an unknown curator. Mm. And uh, we went to the Stones Museum and said, oh, we would love to do a show there. So I said, Carrie let's go to the director. We, we rang the director, we got an appointment, we knocked at her door, she opened, we had a meeting, and I said, you know, I'm a young curator, this is Carrie Wien Evans, he's a wonderful artist, we would like to do an exhibition here. Mm-hmm. Within ten minutes she said yes. Yes. So that means anyone can do it. You know, we were not famous, we were not, we just one needs to convince.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think this idea that we convince people in society of the necessity of art is mm-hmm. very much part of the curator's job. And, 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 uh, and, and I do believe that that's something, you know, which should be taught more mm-hmm. at universities and schools, for curator schools. It's this idea of not being shy in that sense. For, for actually just going into society and, and believing that it's possible, that any, that one can just do it. And not waiting. There's only kind of waiting that one gets entitled to be a curator in, a, in an institution and then is entitled to do shows. There's no necessity to wait, you know?
1: It's strange because I had an interview the other day with a former museum director, but he was saying the museum is not the place of imagination.
2: Yeah, I think the museum can be and should be the place of imagination. It
1: should be, but I think he's is advocating for it needs to be changed, Like, um, yeah. and I thought that was quite strong words to come from a museum director. You know, you're talking about your uh, beginnings in Switzerland, and I don't know if you want to talk about very early. Uh, you created, I have not visited, Robert Walser House. Exactly, yeah. I would like to know but I love Volsa and yeah so I'm
2: that's again completely DIY so I was studying ecology and economy you know with Professor Binswanger
1: uh-huh. we were
2: in this small you know city called St. maybe 90,000 90, mm-hmm. inhabitants or 100,000 not even uh, university town and I you know I realized that my favorite writer Robert Walser would go on these endless walks towards mm-hmm. the end of his life because he has different moments of exile he was in a in a sort of outer exile like me, you know, he left his native Switzerland mm-hmm. and he went to Berlin because his brother was a very famous, Karl was a famous painter, was actually much more famous than him at the time mm-hmm. later. And so he, he books with his, you know, brother, but he also went to a strange, to a servant school, a mm-hmm. you know, school for waiters or whatever, mm-hmm. or for, you know, yeah, for waiters or servants. And so he it was actually, I don't know how you call it, it's, it's not servant and it's not waiter, it's when you work mm-hmm. in a domestic context, you know. Kind of a butler school, which was a mm-hmm. conceptual twist, yeah. you know. And then when he went to an outer exile to Paris, uh, mm-hmm. which is a fictitious exile, mm-hmm. the Berlin exile was real, Paris wasn't real. He never, you know, he never visited Paris, but he imagined he would visit Paris. Mm-hmm. And then he went into an inner exile in Switzerland. He was, he ended in a, you know, in a clinic in the end. He stopped writing, he went on endless walks. Carl, you know, Carl accompanied him on these walks. So his last way of writing was more the way of walking. So I decided we could do, you know, and he's. Kafka considered him to be a great writer. Yeah. He was friends with Kafka, and that's kind of nice to do an homage to Robert Walser in the restaurant where he would always halt or pause. It was mm-hmm. like a station, like a way station on his walks. He would stop in this restaurant called Corner Crown and have a coffee, have a tea, often have a glass of wine rather probably a glass mm-hmm. of wine, and then he would continue the walk. And he died on the last walk, and they found him frozen on a Christmas day, famously. Mm-hmm. And so I went to this restaurant, and again, you know, I was a student. No one knew me. I said, you know, I'm Hanselrich. I want to do a Museum Robert Walser here. The guy mm-hmm. who owned the restaurant said, we are not the museum, it's the restaurant. I said, mm-hmm. no, 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 you know, we are got to be very discreet. We're just going to put the vitrine in the entrance. I have a little opening every day. You have business because mm-hmm. we do a dinner. So, you know, I convinced him. It's the job mm-hmm. to convince people. Mm-hmm. And so then he said, bring your vitrine. So we put the vitrine in. I would do, it was the first, you know, Swiss Museum for Dominique González Förster, we had Hugo Sutter, we had Hermann Sobernick, different artists, John Miller, who were all inspired by Robert Walser, and it would always happen in this vitrine, mm-hmm. sometimes in the vitrine, sometimes the artist worked around the vitrine, Andrea Slowinski glued some chewing gums, some kind of very conceptual twist, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we would do little openings with dinners, and the whole thing became a rumor, again, mm-hmm. like the kitchen, you know. No. I also had my nano museum at the time, which I found in the shop of Hans Peter Feldmann, which is a, a little frame, two by three inches, a diptych, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would artists to basically, I would ask artists to do little exhibitions in this frame, and I would always carry it wherever I am. So now, if I would have it, I would put it on this table, show it to you, I would show it to the waiter, I show it to the taxi driver, to the bus driver, mm-hmm. and that was a kind of a two by three centimeter, you know, Hans Peter Feldmann ready-made museum. So. So I did lots of these things, you know.
1: I'm just in awe of how you seem to make uh, the sacred, of yes. bring the museum outside of the museum. So I did ask you to, before to draw me a picture of your brain and how you would allocate the different spaces as though it were a museum. I don't know if we have time for that. And that's
2: also interesting. You see, so Paul yeah. Chan, you know, would invite me to do a book of my doodles because mm-hmm. I always sketch, you know, mm-hmm. They're obviously not artworks, but they're mm-hmm. kind of mind maps of some sorts, you know. Yeah. And so. Like, I was uh-huh. saying, like, I can only do it if Paul also writes mm-hmm. a text which makes clear that this was his idea and not my idea, you know, and that mm-hmm. he actually, you know, wanted to publish my doodles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then, you know, he wrote this text, but he said we need a photograph for the cover, you know, like for the, for the author page, right? Mm-hmm. And so he said, I'm going to send you a photographer. So I was in New York, and again, I had no time ever to do anything like that between 8am 8 and 9pm. 8 so mm-hmm. I do everything very early or very late. Like our mm-hmm. interview is late. Yeah. But I would also do things at seven A. M., right? Mm-hmm. So I told him the photographer came at seven A.M. to my hotel. So the photographer came to my hotel mm-hmm. and it was this young photographer called Ian Chan. And I obviously immediately realized that, you know, he was a young artist who did this as a day job, you know. Mm-hmm. So he because he, he didn't make the normal kind of picture, he mm-hmm. you know, he said we, we, he needed to 3D scan me motion capture me, And that's now yeah. easier but like 10 years ago, it was quite complicated, mm-hmm. so he came with a whole you know, apparatus and technology, and we had to find mm-hmm. a room in the hotel to do it, yeah. and then obviously I started to chat with him about his work, and that's how I met the great artist Ian Chang, with whom mm-hmm. I've now just opened a show in Madrid, and we did showed show at the seventh time. I met him and he was still a student, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that's also interesting, that we always meet the next generation often through artists.
1: Yeah. Yes. As you think about education, technology, the environment, the future, and um, the kind of world we're living the next generation... Yeah,
2: technology, I'm glad you bring it up, because yeah. there's two big themes we haven't spoken about, which we should probably address, yeah. wrapping up this interview, and that's technology and inequality. Let's begin with technology.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In the 1960s, and that's as important as the APG by, by Latham and you know, Stavini, mm-hmm. in the 1960s, uh, Billy Kluevo, the uh, Bell laboratory engineer, Basically, started an organization called EAT, Experiments in Art and Technology. And mm-hmm. The idea was actually to bring artists and engineers together. Mm-hmm. And I spoke recently to Lilianne Schwartz, who is now in her 90s, and she was one of the pioneers of this scheme. And she explained to me that she had for many years an office at Bell Laboratories. So, you know, it's exactly mm-hmm. that idea. Bell Laboratories would have the art, welcome the artists, and she mm-hmm. would be next to these scientific engineering labs and work with the scientists and engineers. And so Billy Quiver did eat. And I think today, it's high time that we go from eat to need, mm-hmm. and that we do new experiments in art and technology. Which is why we've actually at the Serpentine appointed a chief technology officer with Ben Bickers.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Museums usually don't have a CTO, mm-hmm. and we put technology as a very central aspect in our organisation: science, research, development, and technology. And so with Ben, we started initially to do digital commission, mm-hmm. but now we've actually sort of put it much more centre stage, and we're opening next week the South Fe exhibition. And that's a similar show like the do from the videos, mm-hmm. but completely different from the Pompidou because we're gonna have her first VR commission with a cute, mm-hmm. and there's gonna be a kitchen, like in my kitchen show, ah. with a VR kitchen. So it goes back to 30 years later, mm-hmm. to the kitchen show. We've had a Hito Steyl with special apps in the park, the inequality walk, and also her imagining Kensington Gardens as a, almost like sci-fi scenario, 40 years into the future. Um, we had Jakob and that's a collaboration with BTS, the K-pop mm-hmm. band, and that's of course also crossing audiences, you see, because if this is the world of you know, K-pop, and mm-hmm. this is the world of museums, there's of course an overlapping entity, mm-hmm. but it's great if all of a sudden, you know, you bring these two worlds together, and then everybody who is coming from K-pop can come and see Jakob Knudstinsson, and, and vice versa, which, mm-hmm. you, which, you know, so basically you, you merge the fields, you know, and... Uh, and,
1: and what are they, they learning from each other?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that they can learn a lot from each other. I mean, first of all, it's a crossing of audience, and I'm very glad that all these teenage fans of BTS come to the South and meet me contemporary art because I believe mm-hmm. that contemporary art has a, has a transform transformative power, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it had an incredibly transformative. He had an incredibly transformative power on me. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who have these incredibly transformative experience with art and architecture. Like mm-hmm. a taxi driver told me the other day when I dropped when he dropped me. He wanted to ask if I worked there, he wanted to thank us because his daughter last summer had this epiphany running into the pavilion, But all of a sudden she wants to become an architect, you know, mm-hmm. to meet, to sort of encounter art, architecture, design, can have a, an incredible impact on us, on our lives, and really be a life-changing positive force, and so I want as many people as possible to have access to that, you know what I mean, and uh, and that's of course possible through such a BTS experience, because all of a sudden you have so many fans of BTS who come and see a very specialized contemporary art and technology installation by Jakob Stinson. and you mm. all of a sudden have 1400 articles in the music world about mm. that. So it hopefully you know, creates that bridge. What can we learn from each other? I mean, we can combine these bubbles and these fields, and then I think we can learn from each other. I mean, I think for BTS, they have a real passion to become art philanthropists, which mm. is great, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and learn more about art. And I think we can learn also how to speak to more different communities.
1: Right, and then looking back. So that's
2: the experiments yes. in art and technology with yes. Ben, right? So we saw Hadid as well. We extrapolated her drawings into VR. Mm-hmm. We did it with David Adjaye and, and our team last year about an, ex- an augmented reality pavilion. So it's not only VR; it's also AR. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did the oracle with Jenna Sutela, and also with Susie mm-hmm. uh, the, the You know, Who on Nine Thousand? My avatar is an experiment, a new experiment in art and technology. And of course, you know, this is the 30th anniversary last year of the World Wide Web. And Tim mm-hmm. Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web, says in this digital age, we have to fight the loss of net neutrality, because initially the World Wide Web was actually conceived as an instrument for everyone. And he was very concerned that now a fast internet is only there for people who can pay, and then a slower internet for people who can't pay. That's a loss of net neutrality. And I think this idea, you know, there are lots of challenges with technologies today. There is surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. There is at the same time, of course, the filter bubble there is the the fact that you know artificial intelligence is sometimes also as Hito as artificial stupidity mm-hmm. and through that actually you know these bots, these very primitive bots can have very detrimental influence on elections, you know, mm-hmm. can actually endanger the democratic process. So there's all these downsides of technology. Mm-hmm. But there is of course also a great potential for mm-hmm. a more for mondialite for mm-hmm. for that type of dialogue. And there is also a great potential to bring more people to art, to have a more inclusive, more democratic art form, you know, through technology. So I think we need to again, you know, circumvene and avoid these pitfalls and these dangers and at the same mm-hmm. time reinforce the positive energy and uh hopefully, you know, develop something with uh, technology um which uh makes it a uh, you know a positive experiment. And I think that's something we're doing very strongly at the certain time now with Ben, with Kay, our digital curator, you know and our entire teams, and, and, and think about the fact that it's for everyone, because this idea of net neutrality, mm-hmm. we are also in that sense for net neutrality, because the Serpentine has free admission, yes, and we want to beautiful. do art, architecture, and design for everyone. And then there is inequality, mm-hmm. and we live in a, a city like Paris, where we meet today, or London, which I think every other big city in the world is a, is, has a very obscene inequality, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of artists today want to address this inequality, which try. why we decided to also going to Barking Dagenham, you see, because I think for many people free admission is not enough, because you have kids who grow up in Barking Dagenham, the majority of the kids, and that's a, one of the boroughs outside London, in the wider London you know, mm-hmm. boroughs, with the biggest unemployment rate. And for a lot of kids growing up in this borough, they never make it to London, they can just simply not afford the ticket to come to central London. So it doesn't help if we have free admission, if they cannot see it. So this is why we now go into the borough, and we are working you know, and that was really something Arthur Jayfer advised us that we should go into different neighbourhoods. And so mm-hmm. we're doing this with the pavilion, but this year also with our civic curator. We appointed with Amal Kalaf, an artist mm-hmm. to be our civic curator. And she with our education department now works in Barking, Dagenham with the radio ballads. Also mm-hmm. Susan Lacey is there and is kinda of work with me on a kind of oral history to expand my interview project beyond the cultural sphere into mm-hmm. society and speak to people from all disciplines and fields and professions and layers mm-hmm. of society and uh, yeah. then at the same time, you know, the radio ballads uh, will happen with uh, Rory Pigram, but also with uh, Sonia Boyce, who is now going to represent England in Venice So we have a Serpentine in Kensington Garden and we have a Serpentine in Barking Dagenham mm-hmm. And that is of course addressing the theme of inequality. So I think that's more or less it. You know, the, whilst I lived in Paris, we mm-hmm. would always come here after dinner. it's open late as you Mm -hmm. can see right so after midnight and the cafe is still open Mm -hmm. now the thing which is interesting is that really during the 90s and early 2000s we would always gather here after dinner all the different disciplines would meet you know Mm -hmm. design music art literature architecture so it was almost like a salon Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: I think we need salons for the 21st century I mean not not elitist salon or not exclusive salons in somehow Private homes, but more salons in, co- in coffee houses, right? Where mm-hmm. also the idea of chance of such a public gathering mm-hmm. place comes in. I think coffee house salons are very urgent for the 21st century.
1: Well, it's so interesting to find that obviously what other people are thinking, but in a spontaneous way. I think I want to thank you for no, the beautiful you. reaches of your imagination and uh, for all you've done to expand ideas of ways of curating, engaging with art your life of perpetual curiosity and learning and sharing these with others, both within and outside of the museum setting, and your commitment to showing us new ways imagination can be applied to the pursuit of knowledge, and for the many conversations you've had and the conversations you've generated through your books, exhibitions, and projects, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: Thank you for your great questions, and it's great to see you at the Café de Flore in Paris.
0: This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Ali Chow. Assignment editor is Sirella Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anatolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.